to Messi. Will he get that first goal for Barcelona? Remember the name, Lionel Messi, at the age of 17, scores his first goal for Barcelona. Back to Mbappé! What a great day it's been for him! Oh, spectacular Thiago! Haaland, very accomplished player himself, and Haaland, in behind goes for goal! What a start to his Dortmund career! One chance, one goal! Welcome to the Pure Football Podcast, the unbiased Scottish voice celebrating the good, calling out the bad and giving you in-depth insight into football from the local park to the World Cup. I'm Owen Brown and I'm joined by Gavin Miller. Gavin, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing really good, Owen. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good, thank you. Um, this week on the show, we're going to be reviewing and previewing some European football and Scottish Premiership matches. Um, let's start, though, by getting Gavin's quick thoughts on the big topical issue here in Scottish football. Uh, and that's, of course, St Johnston versus Aberdeen being postponed because of Aberdeen players uh, contracting COVID-19. So I just wanted to kind of get your, your very brief thoughts on that. Do you think the players were irresponsible? Should St Johnston have been awarded the three points? Um, would Aberdeen have been better off without the likes of Bryson and, and McKenna <laughs> anyway, who presumably weren't going to be allowed to play? Um, what, what's your thinking on this? Uh, yeah, it just feels like the full situation was avoidable um, from sort of top to bottom. Uh, I think that from Aberdeen's point of view, you would imagine that, you know, their club doctors, their, you know, the Dirk McInnes himself would have had really sort of um, in-depth conversations with players around about expectations. Um, we don't know this, I guess it's a bit of an assumption, but you would imagine that you would be asking them to make sure that they're, you know, avoiding, uh, you know, pubs and restaurants as much as possible. Um, I guess it's, to me personally, I just feel it's a bit silly that we even have these sort of establishments open right now for people to sit inside when... Um, you know, there's so much still riding on the the COVID situation, um, and it's on such a knife edge. Um, but yeah, I think Derek McInnes will be extremely frustrated with the players. Um, you know, and also we're at a stage in the season where you know these players haven't played in months. There's not been any real pre-season, so missing out on another game can you know it could potentially really impact Aberdeen in terms of how long it takes them to get up to speed. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's fair. Um, I, I was kind of particularly annoyed with the statement the players put out um, to kind of excuse their actions. Felt a few bits of it were a little bit um, ridiculous. Um, they kind of said that they couldn't really have foreseen um, the kind of escalation of COVID-19 cases. And I, I think that's a wee bit naive. And, and also they said that they kind of attempted to comply with the rulings, but I, I think it's unbelievable to think that you're attempting to comply if there's you know so many different households um, associating that way. Anyway, um, that, that that's kind of brief thoughts on that kind of topical issue. I guess now to move on to some match analysis. So, as I said, combination of European football and Scottish football for us this week. Um, and we'll start with last Friday when Manchester City hosted Real Madrid in the Champions League round of 16 second leg. Um, Manchester City won 2-1 in a night, 4-2 in aggregate to set up a quarter-final against Lyon. Um, Lyon themselves defeated uh, Juventus over the two two legs, which led to Sarri's dismissal and the appointment of Andrea Pirlo. Um, we're going to analyse the match which happened in Manchester, but first off, 
I just want a quick reaction to the Pirlo appointment, um, particularly coming to you for this, Gavin, because I, I think I remember in the past you kind of commenting about kind of player warm-ups and things like that at halftime being a little bit kind of performative and for show. Uh, I thought you might be hearing, uh, you might be interested rather than hearing Andrea Pirlo's thoughts on them. This is a direct quote from his book. Um, he says, I hate it, it meaning um, kind of warm-ups, uh, with every fibre of my being. It actually disgusts me. It's nothing but masturbation for conditioning coaches, their way of enjoying themselves at the player's expense. Um, so d- wow. does that kind of um, endear you to Pirlo's appointment a little bit more? What, what do you think about this kind of him coming in at Juventus? Yeah, it definitely does endear me to him a little bit more. I think I totally agree with this point. I, th- I think, you know, unless the player's coming on immediately after half-time, what is the actual value in that warm-up surely being there for... No sort of tactical discussion would be more uh, relevant to the overall game, but that's a different subject. Um, I guess just quickly on Pirlo's appointment, I'm not enamoured by it. Um, I don't particularly like um, these sort of appointments where you know Pirlo still has some badges to set before he can actually be in the dugout, if I remember uh, what I read earlier on today. So I think that to me doesn't bode well in, sen- in the sense of and uh, not appointing someone that isn't actually allowed to do the job. Um, I think there's there's a number of other managers that Juventus could have got. I think Sari, he seems to me to be someone that needs to maybe reset his career um, and maybe needs to go somewhere where he can maybe uh, do a bit of a project. But yeah, I think uh, the, the appointment of Pirlo, I guess it feels quite similar uh, in a sense to, you know, what, Lampard was to Chelsea in, in some sort of extent. Mm-hmm. I know Lampard had the the spell at Derby, but um, I think bringing in a an experienced coach, um, you know, when Inter Milan are starting to to do things, uh, Conte's starting to pull them together. Uh, you know, there's Atalanta who are obviously really good, and and Lazio if they can keep their squad together. There's it's just it seems like a a bit of a risk that Juve maybe didn't need to take. What about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems a wee bit strange to me, um, particularly given that it seems like Juventus have kind of bet everything on winning the Champions League in the next year or two with you know kind of all the money that they've invested in uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, so to, to then kind of just um, kind of change tack and bring in somebody completely inexperienced, it, it does seem a little bit strange. You'd have thought if they were going to bring somebody else in, they might have thought about bringing in somebody that you know was a, a kind of safe bet for kind of cup competition type things. Um, it'll be an interesting one to watch for me. Um, I, I, I think, obviously, it's an incredibly risky appointment, particularly at a time when Juve seem to be declining a wee bit. Their numbers are not the numbers of a champion, really. Um, and, you know, Inter seem to be um, on the advance. Milan might be making some reasonable moves to come back into things in Italy. So, yeah, a, a strange one. I guess it's uh, maybe another uh, possibility for us to watch and see how much impact a manager really makes you know mm-hmm. uh, you know how much um do they really have an impact good or bad uh, you know obviously hard to know anyway to move back to the Manchester City versus Real Madrid match um we're going to kind of run through um a few details from it first of all just give me your thoughts Gavin on the, the kind of team selections from this game yeah so obviously Real Madrid were at a, a you know a serious issue without having Sergio Ramos I think he's still a, a such a pivotal part and their um, team, and you know, I think that they they do really rely on him from from leadership from the back, and also for his uh, ability um, to you know 
almost carry them at times um, with just his sort of, uh, I guess, his maybe a little bit overzealous in the way that he plays, but I, th- I feel like he's quite an inspirational character to Real Madrid. And when I was looking at their lineup, I, I feel like they, they maybe lack a little bit of leadership out with that. Even so, they've got some seriously experienced players. I just don't see a whole lot of leaders in that team. Um, mm. From a, a Man City point of view, obviously it was really interesting to see uh, Phil Foden um, has, you know, been picked over David Silva. Um, and, you know, uh, I think it's just, it's really interesting how he sort of played in the game. I think he was a, a bit more of a, you know, a false nine, which to me was really interesting the way that, that Man City sort of set that up. What about you? Yeah, similar to you. Um, interesting to see Sergio Ramos's attire for the evening, looking like some sort of uh, hipster barber or barista on the sidelines. <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously he was a critical um, miss for, for Real Madrid. And I, I think you're right to point to the fact that maybe within that team, there are a few players who, well, they're star players. They're, they're not maybe really the sort of personalities that might drag a team over the line. Um, and yeah, again, just to echo what you thought, it was very interesting that Foden came in, particularly at false nine. Um, Manchester City had done something um, different in the first leg with sort of two false nines almost. Um, but just just the sort of one this evening, and again, Gabriel Jesus starting wide on the flank, two quite aggressive kind of forwards on the flanks. The, the other kind of interesting little tidbit from the team selections was the fact that Gareth Bale didn't even travel um, allegedly kind of asked not to have to travel given it was unlikely that he would make it off the bench um, but you know that's that's just the, the ongoing Gareth Bale circus I guess so we'll, we'll kind yeah. of gloss over that one um, let's go on to the actual action so I guess the kind of first thing that kind of stuck out in terms of key moments are um, the, the Manchester City goals um, so they, they Scored in the ninth minute, um, and both the goals um, came from really errors um, in the defence. I guess Rafael Varane has kind of taken the flak for those errors. Um, do, do you want to kind of talk me through your thoughts on those? Where, where are those kind of goals Varane's fault? Um, is Was that partially down to the absence of Ramos? Were there other things that were maybe um, issues for Real Madrid that are key for you to point out? Yeah, so I'll go. I'll stick with the sort of Ramos point to start with. Just, uh, I think that Real Madrid struggle to progress the ball from deep without him, and I think he's the sort of player that can carry the ball forward that five ten yards um, to you know create the space for a pass or for someone else to move into. I feel like uh, Militao, Varane, and Casemiro, none of them are particularly great on the ball um, and I think they they maybe missed having someone that could just you know make a few basic actions that could create that space to maybe start to get the the Real Madrid um, attack started uh, mm. so yeah that was definitely an issue for me and I think Man City done excellent to capitalise on that I think you've seen it from the opening goal where how aggressive they were I think there was five players um, you know right up uh, at the, the Real Madrid mm. box I think you know there was De Bruyne who was in front of Casemiro so when uh, Courtois plays it out to Varane he's got next to no options really mm. um, but I think that's down to how Guardiola set up and obviously you know we mentioned uh, a little bit about uh, this Real Madrid squad I also think that that includes Zidane I think they're the full setups at a bit of an impasse mm-hmm. um, I think he's quite a predictable manager so Pep Guardiola, knowing what Zidane was going to do, gave him the opportunity to 
really exploit this. And I think that hyper-aggressive press um, mm-hmm. really uh, enabled Man City to you know, dominate this game. And, uh, and you know, that I think we've seen the rewards from that from uh, the opening goal. But yeah, I think it, there was more than one occasion where uh, Man City had this sort of part or sort of really um, aggressive press high up the pitch that Real Madrid struggled to deal with. So, so yeah, that was something mm-hmm. that was really interesting for me. What about you? Um, I, I agree with that entirely. I think that you know City's press is just brilliant. Not just the kind of aggression of it and the numbers, but the spacing of it. You know, everybody is so well drilled as to where to be and where to uh, flex to. And I guess maybe the thing you might say again, we're being quite assumptive here, but potentially that contrasts with Zidane's preparation. Um, so you you would think that if you're going into a game of this sort, you'd probably be wanting to drill for. Um, taking goal kicks and things like that and how to get past City's press um, but you maybe get the feeling that to an extent Zidane maybe leaves it down to the individuals and you know relies in some part on the individuals being good enough to get through it uh, and as we saw you know from Courtois and Varane and that kind of situation may- maybe you, you do need to you know really have some patterns of play determined for how you're going to get through that because it's incredibly difficult, right? Um, so, yeah, that, that might be a kind of um, takeaway thing from this. And I totally agree with what you said about the the issues for Real Madrid in terms of progressing the ball. Um, I think Casemiro, for, for all you know, his kind of benefits as a kind of ball winner, kind of anchor type guy, maybe a bit of an issue for Real Madrid at the moment in terms of getting the ball up the field um, through him. And also the the absence of uh, Sergio Ramos maybe meant that particularly in terms of the left side they they couldn't maybe progress the ball the way they would normally want to, and I guess that leads us on to our next kind of um, question, which is Eden Hazard was pretty ineffective in this match, ineffective rather. Um, I was wondering if you had any particular thoughts on why that was. Um, is it partly because they you know struggled to get the ball up that side to him? Do you think that he's maybe showing that he was potentially a bad buy Real, Real Madrid. You know, he turns 30 in January. Um, obviously, he's a supremely talented player. But in, in terms of what Real Madrid need or in, indeed needed um, after, kind of, for instance, Ronaldo left and, and with the kind of makeup of the rest of their team, um, you might maybe expect somebody in a role that he plays to put up really, really high assist numbers at a kind of super club. But... He's rarely put up those kind of huge output numbers um, over the kind of last few seasons. So, um, do, do you think he was ineffective in this game? If so, why? And do you think overall he, he's proven to be a bit of a bad purchase? Yeah, I think first of all he was a bad purchase. I think even at the the time when they bought him, I think a few people were were sort of questioning how we'd fit in uh, the way Zidane played. He was obviously uh, it was a purchase, you know, in relation to. Uh, you know the Ronaldo, you know leaving, and I think that Hazard, you know, as much as you mentioned, he is an excellent player. It was just to me, it felt like signing the name and not the player that you needed for your team. Um, I think you know if you were expecting anything like the the sort of numbers you get from Ronaldo to Hazard, you're just a little bit uh, off because the the number of shots on goal, you know, as frustrating as a. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo Brophy's shot map might look. Um, I think that it it's you're just not getting the same sort of um, output from that sort of player, and I just yeah, it just didn't feel like it. Just felt like a almost like the Bale situation, um, a player that they've signed the name for, but they're not even sure how they're going to use him, what it's going to 
you know, it's almost just like putting it together a bit like a FIFA team and just hoping for the best. Um, mm. I don't know if you feel any different about that sign. I don't want to do Hazard a disservice because he is obviously a very talented footballer, but yeah, it just didn't feel like the right purchase for me. What about you? Yeah, I feel similarly to you. Again, not to be super critical of him, but to kind of heart back to a point you made earlier about maybe the lack of personality in the Real Madrid team. I mean, I would say that maybe um, you would have an expectation of somebody like that who's supposed to be your kind of star, your kind of match winner, to um, deliver a bit more or at least look like um, he wants to go and really make things happen. Again, that's bleeding a little bit too much into um, things that I maybe wouldn't want to think, like, you know, looking for passion and kind of, um, you know, body kind of movement from players and stuff. But I do think, you know, you, you might have an expectation um, that there's a little bit more from him in terms of, you know, kind of showing the personality, the will to win, the, the real desire at that level to make, you know, the kind of key things happen in the key matches. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think I, I totally echo that. Totally echo that. Okay. Um, and just to finally come back to kind of thing that you, you kind of, we, we touched on a little bit earlier in, in terms of the kind of goal kicks and the kind of mistakes and, and turnovers of the ball. I was wondering whether this game is quite a good example in general terms of um, tactical management overpowering man management. So we would maybe say that Zidane is maybe a kind of um, symbol um, in the current era for the kind of, you know, the, the, the good things you can do um, just through kind of being the kind of um, motivational leader um, and kind of inspiring your team and just putting the, the pieces together and letting them kind of do their own thing. Whereas, Pep Guardiola would maybe say is more of the kind of tactical genius, um, the kind of person who, you know, at times maybe really, really overthinks um, these kind of one-off kind of ties or, or European legs. But in this game, it, it seemed to work. So Guardiola did interesting things for both legs, that sort of double false nine in the first leg. A midfielder has a kind of false line nine in, in the second leg with those kind of aggressive wide attackers. And Zidane, to some extent, just did fairly kind of usual formation and style for him. And he even didn't really change things. Um, He didn't really make any kind of impactful subs um, until pretty late on in the second leg. So do you think that's a fair summation for how to see this tie? Absolutely, yeah. I think that uh, you just have to look at how... uh, we all, Like you mentioned, we already know how aggressive Man City are going to press, but I think there was a real emphasis on this, knowing that Real Madrid didn't have the player that could carry the ball out that five ten yards to get the the play started. So yeah, I think um, the flexibility that Guardiola showed and that the, the I guess the sort of um, tactical stagnation from Zidane was was there. And I think this is something that was maybe he was crit- criticised for in his previous uh, reign as Real Madrid manager. And obviously he's won the title. Um, how much that's down to Barcelona's implosion, I don't know, but um, yeah, I think that may- maybe there's, you know, I-, I know what manager I would want in my bench out of these two teams. Hmm. I guess the, the kind of final thing on that as well is that, um, yes, Real Madrid won the title this season, but as you point to, that was, you know, partly uh, because of Barcelona really underperforming. But looking at this Real Madrid team and kind of picking out the um, fact that there's Sergio Ramos, who's um, you know heading on towards his mid-30s now. Um, there's Casemiro, who is maybe not you know progressing the ball in the way you'd want to and is, I think, in his late 20s. Um, there's Modric and, and Cruz, who are in their 30s now. 
there's Hazard who's going to be 30 in in January. Um, I mean, obviously this is the sort of club that can make changes. They they will have you know cash. Um, but it was also Benzema who's you know he was uh, good in the game, really really yeah. good, but is more older than 30 now as well. So are, are we maybe heading to a bit of a critical moment for Real Madrid in, in terms of their position at the top of Europe? Yeah, I think so. I, I think I mentioned that it does feel like a, an impasse for the full club, not just any one individual. Um, okay. I think that they need to address the the sort of a number of key positions. You know, Modric and Chris obviously are world-class players, but at the wrong sort of uh, side of the age spectrum and and we already know how ageist we can be on this podcast. Um, obviously, tongue-in-cheek. It was but... kind of the other way for me as well, because they got some good, young, promising players, but maybe some of them are too young, it's too new. Yeah. There's maybe a little bit of a lack of peak age players. And I guess that can happen when you're a kind of galactical club that kind of wants success now, that it's, it's maybe difficult to kind of phase people in and, and manage the kind of pathways, so you end up with kind of peak age players all the time difficult thing to manage and obviously they've been phenomenally successful um so i don't think they would you know want to change that you know the last uh, number of seasons that they've triumphed in in europe and so on but yeah m- maybe something coming for them in terms of uh yeah a bit of a drop off you're not going to find a midfield like modric and cruz again i would imagine you know it takes a um you know a lot of luck and time to get a kind of pairing of that sort in there and and you know Will you find a centre back to the level of Sergio Ramos again for a while? Hmm. We'll see. Um, I guess the the kind of final thing I wanted to say about this was just I was really impressed by Manchester City. Um, I think beyond the the kind of aggressive press that you mentioned, I mean it, it just seems um, obvious to mention it now. But De Bruyne was just amazing to me. Um, just not not even in terms of like assists or, or kind of key passes um, this time, but just the little moments just. All the things he does, he's he's just he must be an absolute joy to play with because the combination of having the kind of dangerous technical ability, but also the work rate, yeah. um, and just the calmness on the ball and the ability to to win the ball and and you know keep it and everything, he's just mind blowing. I think in terms of how good he is. Did you enjoy watching him? Yeah, I think he's always a class act to watch. I think you know. Uh, you mentioned there were so many things, but I think uh, it sort of epitomised for his pass for, uh, I think it was for Jesus on the on, I think it was was it just for the goal the sort of, uh, no, yeah. So um, just the the vision that he's got, he, you know, he's like a step ahead. Uh, in fact, no, it wasn't for that actually. It was for a chance for Jesus where he sort of threads it through, um, the two lines, and uh, I think uh, Courtois makes a save from it, but. I think he's just got excellent vision. He's just a step ahead of everyone on the on the park at times, and when he's at you know at his uh, optimum, he's just he's one of the best to watch in the world. Great. Um, so yeah, an exciting tie that one to watch, and uh, look forward to Manchester City versus Leon in the um, the next round, which of course are quarterfinals in Lisbon, and we'll come on to talking about them uh, towards the end of the show. We're going to move though back now to Scotland and the Scottish Premiership, and we're going to talk about um, Kilmarnock versus Celtic, which is the Sunday match. Um, Gavin, a- any thoughts just first of all on the team selections for both sides? Yeah, I'm going to start with Celtic on this. Um, <clears throat> I think in a game where you know you're going to dominate possession, uh, I'm not sure in the value of starting Scott Brown as in this game, I think I would have liked to have seen in Cham. I know he's the club captain, etc., but uh, I think you want a player that 
you know, you know how Kilmarnock are going to set up tactically. You know they're going to operate with a low block, so you're going to want players that can, you know, sort of manipulate that low block and players that can move the ball, find the, the you know sort of eye of the needle type passes. And and I think the difference between Incham and Brown there is just you know night and day. And for you know the the flaws that there is with Incham, I think at these sort of games, these are the ones where he can have more of an impact than someone like Scott Brown. Um, do you have any mm. thoughts on that one specifically? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I guess what I would say is that Lennon's likely to be more risk-averse than that. And I know, obviously, this backfired on him um, on Sunday, and you could say that having Brown in, in some ways is more of a risk, but I, I think Lennon would disagree with that. You know, he'd want his captain, his leader, um, on the pitch for that kind of side of things, but also the kind of insurance that he would believe that Brown would bring in terms of stopping Kelly if they're on the counter-attack and things like that. So, yeah, I understand why people would say that, um, but I, I just think that, you know, that's that's very unlikely to happen. I also think that, um, obviously, Cham didn't get much time on the pitch, but and he played some nice passes when he did, but I, I still do think that he moves the ball on a bit slower than what Celtic would want still. So, yes, more progressive passes than Brown and more incision and so on, but... Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, anyway, any other thoughts on the, the teams? Uh, I guess from from uh, Kilmarnock's point of view, it's interesting to me that Eamon Brophy still struggles to to get back into the lineup. Um, I think he's. I think uh, obviously, we'll, I'm sure we'll get on to Kabamba, but uh, I think that yeah, he's someone that I think really needs to probably figure out what's going to happen with him. I don't think he can afford to be. Uh, not playing for Kilmarnock in terms of the rest of their setup. I think Kilmarnock are going to be quite predictable in terms of how they set up. They don't have a big squad. Um, maybe you know uh, bringing in Di Camona, I thought potentially he could have started as an extra level of insurance, but uh, Kilmarnock set up the way I would sort of expect. Uh, sure. Um, I, I mean, I guess the thing with Burke and Kabamba is that if you're going to play that kind of four-five-one. You probably want somebody more like Kabamba, who's going to be able to kind of hold the ball up and be that kind of outlet um, for for your your kind of backline yep. um, than than Brophy. So you know it's kind of a tactical um, decision rather than maybe any kind of indictment of Brophy. Um, the the other kind of things that stuck out for me were that um, Barkas got a start instead of uh, Bain and goal for Celtic. I was wondering if and when that would happen. Um, both of these teams have got quite a lot of games coming up. Um, I think they both played. Um, on Sunday, then they play this Wednesday, and then they play Saturday again. So um, you know a, a lot of games. So I, I kind of felt that might happen, but um, you know he, he came in. And in addition, in, in terms of that, um, the the home team, well, Kilmarnock played uh, Millen and Waters at fullback, which I think maybe surprised some people. They, they obviously brought in um, McGowan and Houndstrup in the summer, and I think people thought that they might be the kind of starting um, fullbacks. Is certainly the number two and three in terms of their, their squad numbers. Um, but Millen and Waters did well for me. Hounstrup obviously came on for a um, good stretch of the game, second half. Um, but that was the other kind of standout thing. So let, let's move on to the actual football then. Um, so I, I guess the kind of key kind of um, things to pull out are that Christopher Julian really struggled against Kabamba in the first half. And in addition to that, Celtic struggled to break Kilmarnock down throughout the match. Do you want to give me your kind of thoughts, Gavin, on, on both of those kind of key elements to this match? Yeah, let's start with uh, Julian. I think uh, this 
this sort of game reminded me a lot of you know when uh, Livingston played Celtic at uh, last year and sure. and Dykes absolutely ragged old Julian. I felt like Cabamba uh, uh, done some really similar things, you know, in terms of being really physical with him. Uh, I don't think Julian particularly likes the physical side of it, um, for or at least against you know players that are willing to give it, you know, that full sort of uh, energy and physical battle, and you know maybe a, a little bit of um, unsettling for Julian. I think he's a sort yeah. of player where. You know, if you let him do the things that he's good at, he's gonna, you know, sort of stroll a game. But when he's um, maybe just put off kilter, he just really struggles to to get back on. And I think we obviously seen that later in the game. But I think uh, Kabamba done. He was in, incredible for Kamarnock. The way he led the line, um, mm. put the the Celtic, you know, uh, defense under as much pressure as he could. Done lots of um, thankless running. Um, yeah, and I th- I feel like you know he he knew exactly what his role was to do, and he dropped deep when uh, when Kilmarnock went back into their sort of two banks of, well I guess it was uh, four and a five, but then yeah, Kabamba was you know there to to sort of be the sort of shield at the at the front of this sort of block, and I thought he'd done an incredible job with that. Yeah, I'd agree with all that. He, he certainly gave Julian a, a tough time. I think that Julian kind of seems to struggle when he goes out to the touchline um, yeah. and um, I'm not sure if it's exactly that I would say that he doesn't enjoy the kind of physical battle I would maybe say that he's just not that good at it um, in terms of making sure his body's in the right position yeah. and thinking maybe a step ahead in terms of what the other player is going to do the The thing for the penalty was pretty embarrassing really, um, You know, he really should have done better at that from the start, you know, right at the touchline into when he was kind of um, evaded really nicely by Kabamba. So not a good first half for Julian. I, I thought in the second half he coped a lot better, um, you know, seemed to kind of sort of things out. But of course, it was a little bit too late um, by that point in terms of, um, you know, Burke uh, netting the penalty after uh, he hauled Kabamba down. In terms of the other aspect of this, um, and we'll come on and obviously talk about what um, Kilmarnock did well, but Celtic obviously struggled to make chances in this match, so they had the Ryan Christie free kick um, after you know, 11 minutes or so, which I think is fair to say Rodgers didn't do particularly mm-hmm. well with. Um, and overall in this game, I think from the kind of details I'm seeing, um, in terms of expected goals, this is probably the lowest that Celtic have generated in the Scottish Premiership match since records began began. So, you know, obviously that's a, a clear indication, but I think also anybody that saw the match could see um with the um you know the amount of shots that were blocked and, and the lack of shots that were kind of from any sort of dangerous areas. So talk me through any issues in particular you saw, what are your thoughts on you know Celtic struggles on Sunday? Yeah, I've, I felt like Celtic got uh, so far, um, you know, maybe out to about 30 yards from the command goal and then just looked bereft of ideas. Um, I think they they had lots of sort of little five, ten-yard passes, but they didn't ha- really have anything that penetrated the command lines. Uh, I felt like El Yanusi kept sort of dropping into other people's spaces and not really finding his own. Um, they, and I think that then sort of made... It difficult for Edward to get involved in the game. I felt like he was a bit on the periphery. Obviously, there was the, the sort of moment uh, in the box with him and Finlay, which was about about the highlight of what he his game was. But uh, yeah, I just I just felt like they they struggled to 
to penetrate Kilmarnock. And I think, you know, it's it was really interesting to me to see, um, you know, Rogers obviously should have done so much better uh, for the the opening goal, but just the what was it, seventeen attempts on goal and only two on target for Celtic. I think that's really uh, abysmal, and it, I think it's just lots of poor decision making and. You know, there was just a number of different errors and I felt like, uh, especially in the, in the first half, it, it just didn't look like, you know, after Celtic scored, they didn't seem to have like that next level. They didn't sort of up it. They just sort of got a little bit stagnant. And then when mm. Kilmarnock equalised, it just sort of took the, the wind right out of their sails. And I think the second half, as much as Celtic had the ball, you know, uh, they just didn't really do anything threatening with it. It... it it almost reminded me um, a little bit of what Mark Warburton's Rangers teams used to be like uh, against teams with a low block, loads of possession, but no real ideas. And then because there's no real ideas, someone then gets frustrated and then just takes a pot shot and then you start over. Um, mm. And I think in this case, Callum McGregor had a number of shots from distance. But yeah, it was just it was just definitely a, a difficult game for, for Celtic. And I, I wasn't really enamoured by the substitutions that um, Neil Lennon made either. Uh, I think we might, you know, we might talk about some other things, but I thought uh, Alhamadon for Frimpong and uh, Bolognoli on for Taylor right at the end. I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't particularly get them. I think um, Kamala for El Yunusi obviously makes sense when you're chasing a goal, but then I just, I just felt like it. It was a bit like what we were talking about with Zidane. There, it was more like just let the players do it, and there wasn't really a strategy on how you're going to get there. Mm, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I agree that there was a, a real struggle for struggle for Celtic and a lack of ideas. Um, the, the kind of things that stuck out for me were, were similar to you, and uh, El Yunusi often occupied Edward's space. Uh, I think we saw that the previous um, opening weekend against Hamilton, um, but it was kind of glossed over, obviously, by the fact that you know Celtic went on to run out very convincing winners. Um, the, the other kind of things that stuck out to me um, was a, a bit of a lack of any kind of positional rotation. So early on, there were some reasonable moments where Fringpong and Forrest kind of alternated their positions. If Forrest went out wide and dropped a little bit deeper, Fringpong would come into the midfield and, and vice versa. Um, you know, sometimes if Forrest saw that Fringpong was going high up on the right, Forrest would come inside. And that was good, but there was a little bit of a lack of it. And when it did happen, maybe Celtic didn't move the ball over quick enough to them. And, and that maybe comes back to the fact that, you know, Brown's in there and doesn't shift the ball particularly quickly. And also maybe Celtic aren't that good at shifting it quickly on a, a pitch of this sort. On the other flank, um, I, I think not to come back and dump too much on El Yunusi, but I, I think he had a bad game, not just in terms of taking up other people's space. Um, when he got on the ball, um, he, he has a real tendency against a, a low block to just dribble kind of aimlessly um, and not really kind of um, use the ball in, in a meaningful way. And, and I thought that quite often um, when it came into Christie in central areas, um, Christie got pressed too easily. Um, he was really unaware um, when he was kind of turning, particularly if he was receiving the ball with his back to goal and he wanted to turn towards the right wing. Kilmarnock were really good at getting on top of him. Uh, and the other thing, when El Yunusi was coming in on the left, obviously it left a lot of space for Greg Taylor, but Kilmarnock were pretty happy with that. Um, Taylor didn't really stretch the defence. 
you know, Celtic weren't able to kind of get him in positions where they could put him in behind the fullback um, to get those kind of cutbacks and low crosses. Um, he, he was really kind of well kept, constrained, um, you know, in deeper areas and, and wasn't able to put in threatening balls. So a, a, a lot of problems for um, Celtic there. In terms of what you said about um, Lennon's changes, well, he, he did his classic and switched the wingers. Um, so Forrest went over to the left wing for a bit, but it's not really clear what you know the intention really is to achieve there because you know, obviously Kilmarnock are sitting quite deep and quite narrow. Um, so if Forrest has moved on to the left, then you know he probably wants to come inside. Um, so they're, they're really not stretching the defence there. And then when he took Frimpong off for Beaton, um, changed to sort of three at the back, and Forrest went to right wing back. And I could um, understand that, you know, because Klamala came on and it gave another presence um, up top. And, and, you know, obviously you can try and get the wingers, the wing backs, sorry, a lot higher than the full backs, maybe because you have a bit more insurance behind them. So it made sense, but it maybe was a little bit too late. And even when they did do it, um, Forrest, you know, doesn't really get down the line and get crosses in, so you're kind of reliant at that point on Bolognoli being able to deliver a good ball, and it, it was a little bit unfortunate a couple of times. There was a, a late kind of one that came into Forrest that he could maybe have done better with. But overall, yeah, um, very, very poor from Celtic. Lots and lots of shots, 17 again in the match, as you said, but no shots that were unblocked from inside the box, which is incredible. Um, let, let's come on, though, to Kilmarnock. Um, anything in particular that stood out for you in terms of Kilmarnock? Any players or things that you did that think deserve praise? I think, obviously, we mentioned uh, Kabamba again. I think he was uh, honestly outstanding this game. I think, you know, the, the chance where uh, I think it, it was sort of, uh, where it was a two-on-one long ball where Kabamba outmuscles Julian He's running through on goal, and then the sort of deflected shot that just goes over Barkas. I think that was just an example. Of... He should have gone down, right? He should have taken a foul. Then I thought, yeah, and, but yeah. Anyway, carry on. He was very impressive, wasn't he? Yeah, just I thought he was excellent, and for someone that I was highly skeptical of when he was brought in, I think what he came from was it Hartlepool uh, or someone like that. Uh, yeah, I think that he was just outstanding, and I think Kamarnik will be delighted that they've got. Uh, an outlet like him now in their in their ranks, and I think obviously you know the full Kilmarnock done what you would expect from Kilmarnock under Steve Clark here. They were disciplined, they were well structured, they you know defended well, they blocked everything that came to them. So so yeah, I think um, that it was just more of a, a solid performance from the unit. It was interesting to me as well that um, that they only made two subs and not so much from. Um, not so much from like the actual physical point of view, just with so many games, and also you know to try and stagnate the game a little bit more. I just thought that was something that was a little bit interesting to me. I think that shows that this is probably uh, Alex Styers, you know, what he would think would be his best starting eleven, um, to trust the players that deep into the game without really making any changes. So, so yeah, I think just a, a full positive all round for Kamarnik and Alex Dyer. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Very impressive. Um, some kind of standout things for me, though. Um, so, echo your thoughts about Kabamba. I thought Burke was re- really, really impressive. Um, the amount of kind of blocks that he did, the amount of work he got through was impressive. The midfielders were, were really good. I mean, Power and Dicker in particular. I mean, the the 
the kind of defensive shield that they put up in front of the box, the you know the the number of block shots um, is kind of testament to that. And in addition to that, I thought that uh, Millen at right back was really good. He dealt with uh, Greg Taylor really well defensively, blocked loads of crosses that were coming in. But also, he looks to me like he's got a really good cross of his own. Um, there were a couple of really dangerous balls into the box. None of them quite came off, but I think he's maybe somebody to watch out for um, chance creation for Kilmarnock um, if he you know starts ahead of McGowan in, in future games. So, well, well done to Kilmarnock um, and obviously a, a bit of a um, early issue for Celtic, not just in terms of dropping points, but also the way that they played. Um, but a lot of matches coming thick and fast where they may have an opportunity to move on from that. In terms of the other SPFL matches which went ahead, well, um, Livingston inexplicably played F.A. Ambrose at left wing back for the second week in a row and lost 4-1 at home to Hibs. Motherwell followed up uh, a 1-0 loss away to Ross County with a 1-0 loss at home to Dundee United, while Ross County followed up that 1-0 home win with a 1-0 away win against Hamilton Ackies. And Rangers bounced back from their Europa League exit to Bayer Leverkusen um, with a 3-0 win at home over St Mirren. So we're two matches in. Um, quite a lot's going on already. Hibs are top. Motherwell are pointless. Aberdeen are clearless. Um, <laughs> we've got a full round of matches to come this midweek. Give me your thoughts, Gavin, on any key moments or people from the weekend's uh, Scottish Premiership matches. Yeah, I'm going to start off with uh, Kevin Nisbet. Uh, I think it was great to see him uh, you know, score the goals he did. I don't, uh, you know, I think the the header was a pretty good goal, but the rest were were well, it was a tap and a penalty. But I think it, it's great to see that you know Hibs uh, put out a bit of a, a transfer outlay for him. So it's good to see them sort of reaping that bit of reward. I want Jack Ross to do well. He's a manager I really like. I think he speaks well. Um, and yeah, I think for for Nisbet, hopefully this will be able to um, help him. You know, with his adjustment to. The Scottish Premiership from the Scottish Championship, and I know that uh, our resident Pars fan, Cami, um, I guess he'll be happy to see Nisbet doing well, but we'll obviously be sad that he's not at Dunfermline anymore. But I think it was just great to see to see him score the goals, and I think from a Livingston point of view in this game, there's definitely got to be a few warning signs early on. Um, I think you're absolutely right to highlight uh, the FA Ambrose uh, starting at left wing back. I don't particularly understand that one. Um, the three sort of centre backs don't particularly look um, that impressive to me. Uh, it also interests me that um, I'm not sure how Alan Forrest fits in this team. Uh, I think I was quite excited to see how he does, but if they play that sort of setup that they did, then it's it's going to be interesting to see how how he pans out. Um, Maybe need somebody that can get a bit closer to Dykes. I, I kind of felt he was a wee bit isolated. And I guess the other thing I would say is that um, Marvin Bartley seems really likeable, but on the pitch at the moment, he seems to be mainly focused on pointing and shouting rather than actually playing football. Um, so I'm not too sure whether perhaps he should have transitioned into his media career fully um, at the start of this season, whether that's going to be a a year too far from. But anyway, go on. Any other thoughts about the rest of that match or any other yeah, games? Yeah, so I'll, I'll move on from that one then to uh, I think it was good to see Alfredo Morelos scoring again for Rangers. I think uh, it was a 10-game streak, I believe, where he hadn't scored a goal. So I think uh, Rangers uh, will be delighted um, that Morelos was back. And I think you know he was involved in the opening goal as well with the ball across the, the box as well. 
I think Morelos will be someone that will be, you know, from a Rangers perspective, if there are, you know, uh, suitors out there for him right now, it will be, you know, that performance on Saturday will be a reminder of what he can do, you know, scoring the scrappy goals, but also working really hard, dropping into deeper positions. I think there was loads of nice little combination plays between uh, Morelos, Kent and Hadji at times. And I think he's... He's someone that I think uh, before the game, Gerard said that his his head had been you know turned by all the speculation. Uh, I think the type of character Morelos is. I think that's he's someone that's you know uh, highly emotionally charged. So I feel like these sort of things can have a a positive and the negative effect on him. But yeah, I think it was good to see him uh, scoring for Rangers. And I think at times last year Rangers really struggled against. Uh, St Mirren in particular, I think they won both games 1-0. Um, I think the, the game with Barisic scored a free kick and Defoe scored another one, but I think maybe this will be a bit more positive for Rangers uh, and you know bouncing back from the Bayer Leverkusen game, but also just being able to you know beat a team that they maybe struggled with at times last season. Mm. Any thoughts on Morelos? Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, if uh, Leo go ahead and buy Jonathan David for quite a large fee, and perhaps have uh, FFP concerns as well, um, what happens if the interest drops away in Morelos? And uh, I mean, you know, Rangers are kind of stuck with four forwards. I'm, I'm sure there'll be other clubs interested. Anyway, I, I was pleased for Morelos as well. I think that um, recently. Maybe despite the lack of goals, there there has been moments where he's still done good things in terms of link up in the league. Um, I didn't think that was the case against Bayer Leverkusen. I thought thought some of his play in terms of link up and uh, use of the ball was uh, dangerously bad. You know, gave it away in, in really critical areas and in, in bad ways. So I, I guess it's good for him that the link up play and the kind of passing and movement and so on was back on a positive keel against uh, St Mirren. From a St Mirren perspective, um, despite shipping three goals, I thought it looked like Anik did okay. Mm-hmm. Would you say that was the case? Yeah, yeah. Seem- yep. I think he made a couple of really good saves. There was one in particular from Taverne where he'd done a, a great job to get down low. So, so yeah, I think he mm. he done himself no uh, disservice, you know, even so he conceded three goals. But I, I guess it'll be a pity for St Mirren to feel that they gave away so many chances um, after, you know, what was a, a really positive start for their, their kind of defence, the kind of new defence, um, particularly with Shaughnessy in it um, against Livingston last week. But anyway, as we've touched on, a lot of games can thicken fast soon. The, the, the only kind of worry for St Mirren, I guess, is that their next match is against Celtic, who, of course, will be very keen to put their draw at the weekend behind them. Um, any any thoughts on the other um, couple of games yeah, that we had as well? Mother, Motherwell, Dundee United and Hamilton, Ross County? Yeah, so I think for... I'll go to Ross County. I feel like uh, they look like they're benefiting from having one voice in the dugout. I think, you know, we can only speculate, but I think to have, you know, two opinions, uh, co-manager, you know, that must be quite confusing at times, even for, you know, uh, Kettlewell and Ferguson, like... You know who's the actual decision maker? Who's, you know? So uh, I think maybe at times for Ross County last year, maybe that that confusion that we've seen and lack of structure was maybe uh, a, an echo of what their their sideline looked like. So 
Um, you sure? I mean, it works fine on this podcast, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh, go ahead. So be- yeah. better for uh, Ross County with one unified voice. Any thoughts on what happened on the pitch there at all in brief? Yeah, I just thought that uh, Harry Payton continues to impress me. He's someone that I think yeah. does a really good job on the ball um, and mm-hmm. off it. I think he looks like a, a real sort of driving force, lots of energy. Uh, looks like sure. he can create things, a nice sort of range of passing. So he's someone to watch out for. I think he's only got a year left of his contract. So um, yep. be interesting to see how that goes. I think also from Ross County's point of view, um, you know, it's good to see uh, Reed uh, getting yeah. more minutes, which you know makes me happy. But also, I just thought from a, a Ross County point of view, they've got quite a lot of depth in terms of their uh, their actual quality of their team. I think. You know, Stephen Kelly's struggling to actually get a start, um, mm-hmm. who we were excited about. You've got Ollie Shaw, Michael Garden, um, Josh Mullen. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think Ross County could could potentially be, you know, someone that can, you know, definitely improve upon how they were last season. For me, from a Hamilton point of view, it just felt like a bit more of same old, same old. I noticed today they've signed Lee Hodson and a signing that I think a lot of the fans were quite excited about, but... I don't know about that so much. Uh, so, um, Me neither. Yeah. Um, but also, I, I just feel like there's definitely a lot of issues in that Hamilton side this year, and they've still not addressed the goalkeeper one, which was their, their biggest issue. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe still time to get a keeper in on loan, I guess. You know, there's a long time left in this window. I just want to echo what you said about Ross County. I really agree with that. I think they've made a really, really promising start to the season. Um, obviously, joint first. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, Josh Reed at left-back um, followed up a really good performance against Motherwell um, with a good performance against Hamilton. Very, very young. Nice to see him getting some minutes. Um, and I think the, the way they've set up with kind of Tilson and Vigorous protecting the back and then Peyton kind of playing in front of him is really nice. I thought Peyton did really well at times last season. He's good on the ball, nice eye for a pass, but it's, it's good for him to maybe get some minutes in a slightly more advanced role. And then in front of them, um, Stuart and Mackay and Irwin um, seem to be playing, or at least against Hamilton, more of a kind of narrow approach with the three of them, where it made it really difficult for Hamilton to kind of progress the ball centrally. And, you know, there's goals there. You know, Stuart and Mackay are both dangerous as well. So you got, you know, some goals out with just your centre forward. And like you said, good depth in that team. Um, absolutely, I guess we were um, thinking that maybe Kelly might get some starts, but it's going to be a struggle to get into that midfield. In terms of Hamilton, as well as the goalkeeper issue, the thing that stuck out to me um, just was Marius Ogbo. So I don't know, maybe he's got an injury or something, but it was interesting to me that he didn't start against Celtic and then he's not even on the bench against um, Ross County. And that's on the heels of David Moyle getting a new uh, longer-term contract and um, signing Tunde Owalabi, um, you know, forward from from down in England, non-league. So just wondering, um, given that David Templeton's there as well, um, Maybe he's on the out somehow. Potentially. Yeah, and watch just kind of bumped into my mind. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. If he is on the out, then I think a number of Scottish clubs could do a lot worse than trying to pick him up. Uh, I think he's a good sort of. Um, a, a good sort of. I, I don't know how to describe him. He's not the most technical, but he's definitely like. He's like a. He's, a, he's another Christopher Julian basher. Potentially, yeah. Exactly. That's, a, that's exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, shall we move on to Motherwell Dundee United yep. finally for Scotland? Yep. Yeah. Any thoughts on this match? Uh, yeah, it was just and so Motherwell had the you know the lion's share of of possession. They had I think it was more attempts. Um, 
overall, but they struggled again to to have that real quality. And I, and I I was looking at their squad, and again they've got a re- they've got a pretty good squad. You know, Polworth was on the bench here, but I was just wondering, do you think they've maybe upset the squad a little bit by having too much depth uh, compared to last season? Do you think that part of their success was down to having quite a a regimented sort of you know starting eleven, whereas you know Campbell didn't start last week, starts this week. Um, you've obviously got Hasty and Turnbull back in the mix. Um, yeah, just potentially, Gavin. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I guess the area I would say that around is centre forward. Yeah. So I think at centre forward they've got like kind of four options. You would say um, between like Long and uh, Watt and so on. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily say that any one are really the answer. So like there's Jordan White as well. Um, and I don't think any one of those guys is necessarily going to be your number one pick as a centre forward if you want to be third or fourth in the Scottish Premiership. Obviously, they achieved that last season, but might have been a bit lucky. So that's one to look at. Um, I guess the other things as well is that um, the the positive here for me was that they made the choice to um, bring Turnbull off the wing. Um, He'd started wide left against Ross County, which I think isn't the best use of his talents. And they brought Campbell back in. Um, But in, in terms of their actual kind of chance creation, well, I'm not convinced that either of the fullbacks are particularly great on the ball. Um, and that's meaning that the centre-backs are having to do a lot of the kind of ball progression and kind of chance creation. Um, and the, the kind of main outlet is getting it to one of the white guys um, and seeing if they can do something on an individual 1v1 basis, which is okay if the other team are letting you have space in behind them and so on. But if you set up a decent kind of block against them and, and don't allow them space, um, it, it, yeah, there's maybe a bit of a lack of a kind of plan B or, or not even a plan B in terms of changing exactly your approach, but within the game, um, having kind of more kind of rotation of positions and, um, you know, some, some kind of alternative ideas to just doing that. So, yeah, something for Motherwell to think about. Um, I, I think they've maybe got to consider how they're approaching games at the moment. What about Dundee United, though? Any positives to take away from this for you? Yeah, well, first of all, they won a game without Lawrence Shankland. I think that's a a, a positive in itself. I think uh, you know Shankland was so pivotal to them last season. I think to be able to beat Motherwell away from home without him is is a huge positive in itself. Uh, I think the back four from obviously the the sort of dodgy goal they conceded against uh, St Johnston, which obviously you know you mentioned there's maybe an element of um, you know, players losing positions and being dragged out into space, and it was more than just Conley as an issue. I felt like Dundee United seemed to have a bit of a better shape in this game. Uh, I think that you know they've they've still got quite a young team. It was interesting to see uh, Logan Chalmers start as well. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think they'll be they'll be positive uh, for that result, and I think you know they they still for me need to address a few positions. They're quite light in terms of bodies, but. Uh, yeah, positive for Dundee United overall. Yeah, I guess Mellon's still waiting to see who he can get in. There's a long time left in this window, but I guess it's a great result for them and a really good start um, to the you know first couple of games of the season. Uh, and I guess the positive as well is it seems that Mellon's kind of um, 
you know, changing formation from match to match to kind of suit the opponent and what Dundee United want to do and um, quite quite a lot of good things that I'm seeing there. Um, the only kind of negative is that Declan Glass is, um, again, languishing on the bench just as I predicted he would be. Um, you know, two sub appearances, but uh, sorry, two bench appearances, but no sub um, minutes. And I know it's two games into the season. I'm getting uh, itchy feet on that unnecessarily. But um, you yeah. Glass. <laughs> absolutely, it's there already. Get the hashtag going. So, anyway, that's the, the Scottish Premiership um, weekend kind of action. And we spoke about the fact that there's some midweek matches, there's a full round of midweek matches. But it's not the only football this midweek as the Champions League quarterfinals are starting. Um, remember, they're all uh, one-off ties and all in Lisbon. Um, talking of Lisbon, I was in Lisbon last summer for a holiday. Um, very briefly, want to give a, a kind of shout-out to a restaurant called Senior Lisboa. Incredible restaurant, one of the best I've ever been to in my life. And say it's a great city, so everybody should visit uh, Lisbon if you can, when we can. But our focus for now is obviously on the football and on Wednesday night's game between Atalanta and PSG. So I want to come to you first, just directly, Gavin. Give us a score prediction. Um, 1-0 Atalanta. Wow, that's a low-scoring match for these two teams. Okay, tell me why um, we should all want Atalanta to succeed in this match and if there's anything particularly to look out for in terms of players or tactics in the match. The reason I think low-scoring, I think sometimes in these games can just be a bit cagey when everyone expects it to be you know, end-to-end action. Sometimes they can sort of cancel each other out. Um, mm. I think, I hope it's not like that, but that's just it, trying to be a little bit... Uh, semi-realistic about this. I really want Atlanta to win like 5-1 um, but that's not, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Uh, I think at, at, why we should want Atalanta to win is because they're doing things a little bit different, right? They're not really too fussed about investing their money in like the, the youngest of prospects. They're, um, they're almost picking up players that are at this sort of, again, midpoint in their career who maybe haven't quite made it or have struggled at the previous club and maybe or just have a really good eye at picking the potential. Gasparini plays extra, excellent football to watch. Um, they play quite a, a unique system in terms of what you'll see across uh, most sort of mainstream teams. And I think, yeah, I really want them to do well. Um, Elich, uh, Gomez, um, you know, there's so many exciting players to watch. Uh, Froiler and Gussens, all these sort of, it almost feels like a team of unsung heroes. Do you think that would be a fair way to sort of call I it? think Unsung Heroes is a brilliant um, way to describe Atalanta. I would say in terms of what you said about kind of young prospects and so on, um, you, you should watch their youth team um, if you get a chance to um, because they do have some very, very talented uh, young players who, who might be ready in the next year or two to burst through. But in terms of the team right now, um, yeah, Unsung Heroes is a, a perfect way to describe them, um, Gavin. Is there anything else? I mean, I guess one of the things I would maybe point to is um, that they're not PSG and, and yeah. you know, we maybe shouldn't want PSG to succeed too. So that's the other aspect. Um, Atalanta itself suffered pretty badly uh, at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's maybe another reason to root for them. Um, and just the style of football as well maybe is the other thing too. So not just the individuals, they play um, extraordinarily exciting football, which I would imagine most people listening to the podcast are um, well aware of. But if you've not been, um, where have you been? And Wednesday is the night to start <laughs> and get a look at Atalanta, who 
you know, although um, Juventus, of course, won Serie A for God knows how many um, times in a row it is now, um, and still sacked their manager, Atalanta's um, expected goals difference was better than Juventus's in the league. Um, they're, they're just incredibly fun to watch, um, really, really good tactically. And like Gavin says, the, the key thing is lots of unsung uh, heroes um, who are exciting to see. Anything else you want to say about that match at all, Gavin? I think it's a, it's almost like a sorry moment for Thomas Tuchel. Um, I feel like if PSG don't uh, get through this game, I think his days might be gone. I know they obviously cantered the league, but Laurent Blanc cantered the league. Um, and we've seen what happened with him. So I think if, if Tuchel's unable to do so, then we could see him being the next sort of major casualty in terms of the elite managers. Interesting, yeah. Maybe that's why Juventus went for Pirlo um, after uh, dismissing Sarri. Maybe they wanted Pochettino, but Pochettino got a word in his ear to wait and see what happens on Wednesday night. He might be a kind of natural kind of link, given he did play for PSG. Um, and just, I guess, to put you on the spot entirely, Friday night, um, Barcelona host or host Barcelona and Bayern Munich play in the neutral venue uh, at Lisbon. What's the score going to be in that one? Uh, Bayern Munich. Um, Okay. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that match. Um, Obviously, Messi scored an incredible goal against Napoli um, as part of Barcelona going through, but we've spoken before in the show about um, maybe some of Barcelona's issues this season, and we've spoken before about um, Bayern Munich's uh, strengths. It will be really interesting to see what happens in a kind of one-off um, Friday night match um, with with Messi up against the might of Bayern Munich. Um, so that that's kind of um, the podcast done for today. Uh, a lot of football to look out for um, this mid- midweek and, and all over the weekend in, in Scotland and um, Lisbon and indeed um, elsewhere in Germany, I believe, for the Europa um, League. Want to thank everybody for listening. Um, if you have listened, um, please do consider telling a friend um, about the show and leave us a rating and review if you can on iTunes. It does really help us to grow the show and we really appreciate everybody that does that. Um, Gavin, you've got anything that you want to say before we leave it for today? Uh, no, just thanks to everyone that's listening and we've got quite a few exciting podcasts coming out, so just be sure to subscribe and and uh, you'll hear some really special guest ones coming out in the, the sort of short term. So keep an eye out for that. Great. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Let's go.